This is Guns and Butter. Said six million died, and I believe him. I think he's right, uh, and uh, that was at the point of around 1947 or eight, I think. And millions more went on dying after that. You know, when you start to feed a person who's been starving, he doesn't get better right away. He's maybe got a disease, and then he goes down. So that's a minimum figure: six million Germans dead after the war. Plus two million prisoners of war, and beyond that, well, who knows? I think millions. I think the total of Germans killed by Allied action after the war was around ten、uh, to fourteen million, somewhere in there. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, James Back. Today's show: Scapegoating Germany. James Back is a Canadian writer and researcher, a former journalist, book editor, and publisher, and is well known for his books on the history of post-war Germany. His bestsellers, Other Losses and Crimes and Mercies, have revealed atrocities committed by the Allies against German POWs and civilians after World War II. Today we have an in-depth discussion of one of his most famous books, Crimes and Mercies. The fate of German civilians under Allied occupation, 1944 to 1950. We discuss the intentional starvation of millions of German civilians by the Allied occupation, the destruction of German industrial production, the forced expulsion of 15 million Germans from Germany's eastern provinces, and the heroic work of Herbert Hoover and others to stave off. Massive famine worldwide. Jim Back, welcome back. Thank you very much, Bonnie. I've just read your Crimes and Mercies: The Fate of German Civilians Under Allied Occupation, 1944 to 1950, published in 2007. Crimes and Mercies. Is a follow-up to other losses that documented the crimes committed against German prisoners of war by American occupation forces. How would you characterize American treatment of German civilians after World War II ended in 1945? Unbelievable, and I hardly could believe it myself when I first started finding out. Um, when I was living in France in 1988 and 89, I was doing research in a book about the French Résistance, or resistance. And in the research for that book, I encountered a couple of guys who had been German prisoners in a French camp, and they told me of the horrors of the French camp, where they were almost starved to death, and that the Americans were doing the same thing. And I didn't believe it. Because I grew up during the war in Canada, and you Americans were my allies, and I just could not believe that these Germans had been starved to death. Because I knew that、uh, everybody treats a prisoner of war fairly because of the Geneva Convention, and、uh, how could the Americans have done this? But they did. So when I confirmed that. 
I was on the edge of writing my first book, Other Losses. And then when I was doing the research for that, I found that the Allied policy towards Germany was double. We uh, wanted to kill them off after the war. We killed more people by Allied action after the war than died during the war. That's really hard to believe, but it's it's quite true. And uh, But the Americans and the Canadians together um, changed that policy. Uh, while it was in force with one part of the government and the army, another part of our societies, the churches and normal people and so on, charities, the Red Cross, stepped in to feed the people that we were deliberately starving. You write that the whole nation of Germany was converted into a starvation prison. Seven seven million civilians died after the war, in addition to one and a half million German prisoners of war. Could you describe some of the circumstances that German civilians found themselves in in the immediate aftermath of World War II? Oh, well, of course, their cities had been bombed and set on fire, and all of their young men and middle-aged men uh, were flung into camps to die in starvation conditions. They didn't have a roof over their head, and so disease spread all over the place, and they died in their millions. Uh, Eisenhower sent out an order on uh, May the 7th, 1945, from his headquarters in Frankfurt, telling all German civilians through their remaining little bits of government, like municipal and metropolitan governments, telling those Germans that it was a crime now under the American occupation uh, to gather food together for the purpose of taking it to the prisoners in the camps. So not only were the prisoners in the camps starving uh, and the civilians starving, but they were forbidden to help each other. And, of course, they died in their millions, as I say, more after the war than during the war. Who could believe that? But there it is. There are heartbreaking descriptions in your book about how German women and children were living in dark, flooded basements under heaps of rubble without any food. For how long did these conditions continue? They were worse in the cities than elsewhere. They were, of course, not so bad in farming country because the bombs were concentrated on cities and factories. And so it's really hard to say, but uh, the worst conditions in Germany lasted from 19, late 1945 through 1946 uh, to about 1949. So there were three years when people were starving to death and being exposed to death. When I say exposed to death, I mean rain on their heads. Well, now, wasn't there uh, wasn't there a prevention by the U.S. forces to not even allow uh, charity packages to go into Germany? Yes, that's right. They turned back uh, Eisenhower turned back trainloads of food 
that the Red Cross got into Germany, and he said, no, they can't have it. And so the uh, the food which had been collected in parts of Europe and Canada uh, was sent back, and they uh, so much food was sent back that they apologized to the government of France under General Charles de Gaulle, apologized to them for using up so much uh, rolling stock and time on the tracks. In the meantime, of course, people for whom that food had been destined starved to death. It was a deliberate, deliberate policy of the U.S. Army implemented by Eisenhower with the approval of uh, Roosevelt, and he was pretty much under the thumb of Henry C. Morgenthau, who is the uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Could you talk about what the Morgenthau plan consisted of? Now, this plan, which was publicly uh, so-called canceled, it was actually integrated into the uh, JCS 1067 policy for post-war Germany. What was right. what was in the Morgenthau plan? What was the plan? Uh, to kill as many Germans as they could get away with without notice. In other words, to do in the German people, uh, to commit genocide against Germany uh, if they could get away with it. And if the press noticed, or the Congress, which it did, then they would stop and slow down a bit. And uh, they succeeded uh, very largely in destroying Germany. There was hardly any Germany left in 1960 to 65. And the only Germany that was left was hardworking slaves who were um, being run by the capitalist organizations of the UK and the USA and the communists in Russia. You mention uh, General Charles de Gaulle in your book. Did Charles de Gaulle play any role with regard to the starvation of Germans? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, when the uh, prisoners were taken into the French camps, many of them delivered by the uh, uh, Americans against the Geneva Convention, you weren't allowed to transfer prisoners against their will. Uh, when that was happening, Charles de Gaulle was uh, Premier of France begging for German slaves, which he put to work in France, and they died in large numbers, about a quarter of a million of them. According to your book, Britain, Canada, and the U.S. outfitted the USSR with all of their military equipment and food. The USSR was still being helped by the West in 1948. Why was Germany seen as a greater threat than the Soviet Union? Well, in the first place, uh, uh, you're not quite correct about the supply of armaments and so forth to the Soviets. We did send a lot of airplanes, tanks, rail, uh, railway cars, and so on, and railway tracks uh, to the Soviets, and uh, it was um, essential to their winning their war. Uh, but um, 
we did not uh, keep it up in such huge quantities uh, as late as 1948 or 9. I think at that point what was going over to them was mainly clothing and food, especially uh, food. Well, then why was Germany seen as a greater threat than the Soviet Union? Well, at first, uh, you remember, we're talking about something that changed very rapidly. In 1945, Germany was still a threat. We had to make war on them, we thought. In 1946, of course, they'd been beaten and they surrendered. And uh, Germany was seen to be a threat only by people who were already filled with hatred and uh, fear of the Germans. And it wasn't a real uh, thing at all. It, it just was a leftover. It was like war momentum. There was a momentum in our feelings. And it went on killing Germans for many years. At the same time as there was rising up another sentiment, amongst different people in the West who wanted to uh, uh, make allies of the Germans so we could fight against the Russians using German help. You write that the Ruhr industrial region of Germany remained 75% intact after the war and that in Germany overall, industrial regions remained 80 to 85% intact. So how is it that German industrial production was only 25%? Well, uh, German industrial production was very high at the end of the war, nearly high enough to sustain the war, but not quite, uh, which was one of the reasons they lost. Uh, the... Uh, Allies then destroyed the remaining capacity of the Germans to produce arms and steel and coal and so on, uh, to the point that they knocked out about 75% of German industrial production, including the production of oil, uh, fishing fleets in the North Sea, and the uh, production of fertilizer. That meant that the Germans could not produce their own food, nor were they allowed to manufacture for export so that they could buy food abroad. And if they somehow managed to evade that ban, then the Allies, who controlled everything in Germany, just absolutely everything, was under our control. And if the Germans did manage to earn a little bit of foreign money to buy food abroad, then we stole it from them by falsifying the accounts. This is one of the worst disasters ever inflicted on anybody, anywhere. I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Scapegoating Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One of the most amazing stories woven throughout your book, Crimes and Mercies, is the role played in both world wars by the 31st American president, Herbert Hoover. You write that Herbert Hoover practically invented the idea of universal human rights. What was Hoover's contribution to human rights at the close of World War I before he ever even became president in 1929? Well, for one thing, during the First World War, 
Hoover rounded up a lot of money. He was a millionaire at a time when a millionaire really meant something. He was a billionaire, too, probably. In any case, he rounded up all the money, and he rounded up shipping to help Americans who were trapped in uh, Europe during the First World War to get across the Atlantic safely back home again. And um, then at the end of the war, he rounded up food. Uh, well, he did it during the war, too, to feed Belgians and uh, starving kids in northern France. And uh, Churchill opposed him. He was a real old tyrant, that Churchill guy. He was vicious and uh, and funny, too. <laughs> um, the uh, Americans under Hoover, uh, with the help of President Wilson, uh, were not only saving American lives, but uh, they were uh, putting food into the mouths and stomachs of uh, young Poles, kids in Germany himself, and Belgium, and so forth. And that was partly a relief, a private relief, organized by Hoover. And he would buy food from uh, surplus countries such as Canada and take that food over, ship it over, and feed starving children in Poland and even starving prisoners of war in Russia. There were Germans starving to death in Russian camps that Hoover was uh, helping to feed. If World War I ended in 1918, then why did Winston Churchill have a British blockade on Germany in 1919? Vengeance and hatred and fear. Uh, he uh, wanted to force the Germans to agree to the most horrible kind of peace terms you could imagine, by which they would lose their army, their uh, part of their government, part of their territory, and billions and billions and billions of uh, money, whatever kind you want, uh, in uh, reparations, which was part of the run-up to the Second World War. Do you know how it is that Herbert Hoover got involved helping stave off starvation after World War I as a private citizen? I mean, he wasn't even in politics then, was he? No, he was a miner living in London, England, very rich, with connections all over the world. I think my grandfather knew him, but I'm not sure. My grandfather was also a rich miner in Canada. And uh, Hoover was rounding up some help for Americans stranded in Europe and his uh, um, kindness and his relief efforts led to more and more of the same. When you do something really good like that, then uh, it leads to more. There's always a need for that sort of thing. You write that there is shocking evidence of Roosevelt's hostility toward Herbert Hoover's humanitarian efforts to feed the starving. Why was the Roosevelt administration and the State Department, in other words, I guess the Democrats, so prejudiced against Hoover? Boy, that's a big question. <laughs> anyway, I'd be glad to answer it. Part of it was politics, that Roosevelt was uh, uh, in trouble running against Hoover. Uh, part of it was that uh, 
Roosevelt was in favor of big business and helping big business, even though he pretended not to be. Part of it was that the uh, American war machine was revving up, and Hoover was again that. He didn't want to uh, see American boys going over to fight in uh, Europe. And uh, part of it was the uh, uh, way the Canadians were playing the devil's advocate, trying to get uh, the Americans to come into the war. So Roosevelt was a hypocrite and a liar and a deceiver of the worst possible kind and a warmonger pretending to be a peacemaker. All of this was, of course, again, the ideas that uh, uh, Hoover stood for and the principles that he stood for. Well, it sounds basically like Herbert Hoover opposed the U.S. entry into World War II, and Roosevelt was very much supporting it. Yeah, that's right. Um, Roosevelt wanted to get the U.S. into the war. He saw an opportunity because the British Empire would collapse because of the war, and it did. That's what happened. And Roosevelt was standing there... um, helping to bankrupt the British by charging them big bucks for uh, all of the armaments that they sent over. And so the British Empire was bankrupt by the year 1941, according to Lord Beaverbrook, who was uh, one of uh, Churchill's cabinet ministers. There was just no way the British could finance the war themselves. So Roosevelt, seeing his opportunity, uh, gave marginal support to the British to keep them going until he, Roosevelt, was able, according to some Americans, to foment a war in the Pacific, which inevitably meant the Americans would go into the war in Europe as well. So then, is it your analysis, uh, generally, that Roosevelt's motivation into getting the U.S. into World War II was so that the U.S. could take over the British Empire? Only partly. He also thought uh, uh, that he hated the Germans. He didn't know them very well, but he hated them. Uh, And a lot of people did in the Western world. Nobody knows exactly why, except that they were a threat. And uh, why people would think the Germans were a threat when mainly what they wanted to do was to trade with us. Uh, But that was a a threat, too, because if the Germans trade with you, that means you don't have your factories open. Uh, You're importing stuff. And the same thing is going on right now between the U.S. and China. There are people in the U.S. hating China because they work hard and uh, they're successful in exporting their uh, cheap labor. And the same thing was partly happening between the Americans and the Germans. What can you tell us about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact? It's commonly believed, of course, that the invasion of Poland by Germany is what set off World War II. Why did Britain challenge Germany not to invade Poland? And why did the Germans and the USSR both invade Poland? What was it about Poland that made Germany and the USSR invade? 
Well, in the first place, the Poles had hardly ever been a country on their own. They'd been first ruled by the Russians and then by the Germans and then by the Russians again. And they were only briefly free uh, with their own king and government and so on. Uh, But they were always fighting for their independence because they wouldn't give in. Uh, But uh, the uh, Germans wanted to get the Russians on their side to invade Poland to make it easier for themselves. So they uh, wanted to fight against only one enemy, which in that case would be the Poles at the start. Then the British saw the chance to jump on the Germans while they were occupied in Poland and uh, to fight the Germans and beat them, they hoped. But that had begun not in 1939, which was the date of the invasion, but it had started in about 1895 in Great Britain when a group of very powerful people, including the future king, that would be King Edward VIII, who was uh, Prince Edward, Prince of Wales at that time, he got together with Cecil Rhodes, the rich guy from South Africa who um, found diamonds, and um, Lord Natty Rothschild, a rich member of the uh, Rothschild banking family of Frankfurt, and many other uh, British uh, nobility who are afraid of German factories and German uh, production. Also, the German birth rate was very high. You've got to remember that at this point in time, 1895, the British could not feed themselves, nor could the Germans. So the Atlantic trade was extremely important because all the food, extra food, that both Britain and Germany needed had to be shipped across from Saskatchewan and Kansas through Montreal and New York. And because of that, the Royal Navy became the protector of the British and the German Navy had to be built up, or so the Germans thought. There was no real need for a war at all because these nations were all easily able to trade with each other. They knew how to do that. They were doing it already. But the uh, crazies in London under Rothschild and Churchill and uh, Lord Grey and the king, eventual king, Edward VIII, were uh, just out of their heads. Who knows? I can't explain why they were so crazy, but they were. And fear was at the at the foundation of it. And uh, Poland fell between two huge powers who were going to ruin each other and Poland, which is what happened, uh, if they didn't solve their problems. So the war that began in a secret cabal in London with Lord Rothschild and Churchill and the king went on from 1914 to 1918, and it wasn't over in 1918 either, of course, because it started up again in 1939. And all of that is why Poland got ground to dust and the British got ground to dust as well. And, of course, the Germans. 
So then would you characterize uh, both world wars as an intercapitalist rivalry, basically, uh, between England and Germany? I wouldn't uh, do the Marxist analysis. You don't need it. Uh, when you see the uh, facts on the ground without any kind of uh, framework over them, uh, you see them fighting for trade, fighting for food, and fighting, as they thought, for their country and their loyalty, which was really, uh, now you can get a Marxist analysis, which was really for capitalism and royalty and so on. But that's only part of it. The, uh, the, the real fight was a matter of fear and stupidity. Because at the end of all of this, and winning at the end of all of this, the British were bankrupt and out of uh, out of empire. They just had to leave their empire uh, to the Americans and to the Indians and South Africans and so on. And uh, and they were starving. If Canada hadn't produced so much wheat for them from 1945 on or even before, uh, the British would have starved to death. Then, you see, uh, the Germans uh, could not be put down. They were working hard, and by 1960 or 65, the Germans were the richest people in Europe. And that was what the war had been designed by the British to prevent. Nothing stupider, nothing more destructive could possibly be imagined. And therefore, all of this had to be hidden and we had to be driven to the front with propaganda and lies and the worst kind of deceit. I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Scapegoating Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You mentioned uh, King Edward VIII of Great Britain. Now, wasn't he responsible uh, even before he became king, to orchestrating this triple entente of uh, France, Russia, and Great Britain aligned against Germany? Yes, he was part of that. And that's all described in a wonderful book uh, called Hidden History. It has not yet been censored out of existence. You can still get it through Amazon. So I advise your listeners and mind to to go there quick and get it while you can yes thank you i have ordered that book it's very important for your work pony you've done the right thing i think what was the potsdam protocol it was just the uh, formal declaration of the intent to destroy germans and germany only not in uh, such bad language that the press would come out against it. But the major intent of it was to destroy Germans and Germany according to the Morgenthau Plan, which was founded in hatred and fear of the Germans and for uh, vengeance against them, founded by Henry C. Morgenthau, and uh, he persuaded Roosevelt and Churchill to adopt it as formal policy under JCS 1067, which was declared at their meeting in Quebec City 
1944. Later, it was implemented when the Americans and British got into Germany and began running the place. Yes, and wasn't the public then deceived into believing that the Morgenthau Plan had been uh, discarded? Yes, that was a major deception. As a result of the seizures of land and the expulsions in the East by Poland and the USSR, about 12 million starving, penniless refugees poured into the remainder of Germany. Could you talk about the expulsion of 15 million Germans from the eastern provinces and the Sudetenland into the occupied zones in 1945 to 1950? Did these compulsory population transfers constitute ethnic cleansing? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, because the land was confiscated, the people were kicked out, they were starving, and they were never allowed any kind of recompense ever at any point. So they were just dumped into Germany. They were starved to death, and they constituted a great number of the eventual dead in Germany caused by the Allied vengeance. That's all it was. There was no need for this population transfer at all. There's plenty of food in the West for all of these people. Now, how big of a tract of land are we talking about in these eastern provinces that were emptied of their German populations? Had this area been a part of, of Germany proper? Oh, yes. It was one-third of the German territory at the start of the war. And Germany was already quite a big country then. Not nearly as big as the U.S. or Canada, of course, but a little bit bigger than France. And now, after the war, with the seizure of the land, Germany was one of the smaller countries. So one-third of the uh, territory was taken away. Famous old countries like Prussia, uh, which had been a kingdom, were just exterminated, and the people gone. And Brandenburg and Silesia and other places like that, famous places, just eliminated and the people tortured and butchered and starved, and you can't imagine what went on. There's a great American scholar called Alfred Desaias, Z-A-Y-A-S, who's written a wonderful book about it, published by the University of Nebraska Press, and it's available by uh, uh, Amazon, and you can buy it under the title Nemesis, at Potsdam. His name is Alfred Desaias, Z-A-Y-A-S. Alfred Desaias, of course, wrote the foreword to your book, Crimes and Mercies. Yes. He's a great American and a great scholar. That's one of the, uh, the things about the United States that I really like and hold on to. And it's true in many other countries as well, that the establishment, uh, the people in power right at the very top, even today, has amongst it fine people who have a good heart and values that encompass humanity and not just some narrow section of it, people who believe in accuracy, 
in history and who do not want endless war. And uh, one of those persons is Alfred Desaius, and another person, a wonderful man, was Colonel Ernest F. Fisher, who helped me with my research, who was an army historian. You could not imagine anyone more central to U.S. power than a man like Ernie Fisher, a colonel, who was writing official history of the U.S. Army, and many others like him, who helped me, even though I was, in their terms, uh, a bomb-throwing revolutionary. When I say bomb-throwing, what I mean is a guy who threw a metaphorical bomb under the uh, stately procession of the liars and cheats like Roosevelt and Churchill and uh, Eisenhower who were wrecking the republic that uh, Ernie Fisher and Hoover and many others uh, were trying to save. And in what manner were Germans expelled from their homeland in Germany's eastern provinces? According to your book, over two million Germans are known to have died in the expulsions, and Chancellor Adenauer wrote that six million of them died. That's right. And, and Chancellor Adenauer was in charge of the German government from 1949, so he really knew what was going on, and he was helped by Herbert Hoover, who was in charge of a relief program and who therefore knew all the statistics that there were about uh, people starving to death. And so that's the most accurate figure that you could possibly get. It was approved by Robert Murphy, too, uh, who was the U.S. ambassador to Germany at the time. And... uh, Hoover said six million died, and I believe him. I think he's right, uh, and uh, that was at the point of around 1947 or 8, I think, and millions more went on dying after that. You know, when you start to feed a person who's been starving, he doesn't get better right away. He's maybe got a disease, and then he goes down. So that's a minimum figure, six million Germans dead, after the war, plus two million prisoners of war. And beyond that, well, who knows? I think millions. I think the total of Germans killed by Allied action after the war was around uh, 10 to 14 million, somewhere in there. Yeah, that's an astonishing figure and quite well hidden from the public. That's right. And when you raise the subject, uh, people say, well, look what the Germans did. But the Germans never did anything as bad as that. That's 14, 10 to 14 million people. Whatever they did was far fewer, and it may have been just as evil in intent, uh, but it was also a genocide the way it was against the Germans. In the foreword to your book, Crimes and Mercies, Alfred Desaius states that the situation of the victims of Potsdam have grown worse, that all Germans have been deprived of human rights. That's right. 
Freedom of expression has been severely restricted by legislation elevating history to dogma. That's to right. Protected by criminal law enforced through jail sentences. Yep. Desias states that this is a return to the days of the Inquisition. Are, yep. are Germans considered collectively guilty and therefore they have no rights? It's so bad in Germany that the whole generation has got PTSD and they're trying to cope with that now by psychiatric means which will uh, relieve the Germans of the burden of guilt for the crimes they undoubtedly committed, uh, whether at war or in uh, civilian terms. And those people are dying just the way Canadian Indians are dying from lack of faith in themselves, a sense of guilt and shame foisted on them by the Canadian people and Canadian government. We foisted that horror onto the German people, and they're dying as a result. The German birth rate is the lowest in Europe, and it's not even replacement. It doesn't even replace the people who die, and uh, that's the way it's been for many years. The Germans lack faith in themselves because they've been lied to about their ancestors and all the crimes that they committed, including war guilt. <laughs> it's quite plain who started the war, and yet the Germans are lied to, and if you protest against it, you go to jail. Quite a few people are in jail right now in Germany as a result of protesting against this sort of defamation. Well, then Germany is still occupied territory, right? That's right. There are 90, uh, between 90 and 100 uh, American military bases in Germany, and there are all kinds of other weights upon the German psyche. I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Scapegoating Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that in 1947, two years after the war, the world was saved from starvation. How was this accomplished? By the generosity of the American people and the American army. One of the people in charge of this uh, transport of food was uh, a guy called Robert Patterson. He was in Truman's cabinet, and he helped to organize the shipment of food across the Atlantic. Also helping him was not only Herbert Hoover, but Mackenzie King, who was the Prime Minister of Canada. You remember that little country way off to the north of you, up where the glaciers are? Remember that, Bonnie? Yes, right. And uh, that's where you get your ice from Canada. Uh, but you also get your wheat. And the Canadians contributed gigantic amounts of wheat to feed the starving in the world, and so did the Americans. And it's one of the reasons that guys like me can keep on going, because we just couldn't be writing about uh, the truth about uh, all our horrible actions 
in the world without something like this to show that there's more than that in our lives. There's more than that to our societies. There's more than that. There's generosity, good-heartedness, and a desire uh, to be kind to other people. Uh, we do that. We really do do that. And so do you Americans. And not only us, but many others around the world. But the most spectacular event of world charity ever was the feeding of people, the enemies, the former enemies, after the Second World War, mainly people that we had forced to starve. How about that for irony? How big was Canada's involvement in World War II? What kind of a role did they play? Well, it was very important. They were there to help the British when the British needed it most in 1939, 1940, 1941, before the enormous American war machine got uh, rolling. Uh, they were also... Uh, very important because they were trying to persuade Roosevelt to uh, give arms to the British, or at least sell arms. And that was not permitted under American law. So the Canadians were telling lies, propaganda lies, to Roosevelt and Morgenthau and many others in the United States. They had a huge uh, propaganda effort and bribery they were bribing American columnists and newspaper uh, men and uh, people like um, uh, William Randolph Hearst to uh, convince them that the Americans ought to go into the war, which was a lie. It was not a, a good thing for the Americans at all. But the Canadians were in there uh, pitching to make the war worse for everybody. They then, after the war put together all kinds of money and food to feed the starving British who brought the disaster down on their own heads because of that moron Winston Churchill. And uh, the Canadians put up all kinds of money to keep the British from starvation. Canada still had food rationing, not only in 1945 when the war ended, but in 1946, 1947, and 1948, because we were giving so much food away around the world. When I talked to a Canadian cabinet minister about that, I said to him, his name was Mitchell Sharp, I said to him, why did the Canadians do this? Uh, the war was over. And he said, because it's what we do. Now, in your book, uh, you write quite a bit about Herbert Hoover's involvement with uh, staving off the starvation of millions and millions of people worldwide. Hoover was 72 years old, according to your book at the time, and traveled yep. 35,000 miles by a slow propeller-driven plane. That's right. And sometimes those planes were not even heated properly. He would be up there with not enough oxygen, maybe, and maybe he was a bit cold, and uh, it would take a long time to get where he was going. Not like a jet today. You write that Hoover's estimate that the food campaigns had saved 800 million lives from at least one fatal famine shows the astounding scale and compass of the work. 
even 10% of that number of lives saved was more than had been lost in the entire war, the most devastating in human history. Yet today, this immense, unprecedented charity is largely forgotten. Do you think that history has treated Herbert Hoover fairly? Oh, no. No, he he was a great man who did a great job and uh, against terrible odds, and he didn't have much help uh, in the United States, although he had enough, enough to get it done. And uh, no, I don't think he has been uh, treated fairly. You have an interesting uh, little description in your book about some of the fundraising dinners that Herbert Hoover had hosted in the United States, $1,000-a-plate dinners to raise money uh, to stave off the uh, starvation of millions of people, and that what he served at these dinners was uh, rice and potatoes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Marvelous. Richard... And he got people to come and eat it, too, <laughs> and, gi- and give the money. Think of the power of that man, the magnetism, the personal charisma. Wow. He was a Quaker, did you know? Yes, that's in your book, that his parents were Quakers. Yeah. His mother was a Canadian from southern Ontario. It's it's sad that uh, in a popular lore, he's always made fun of, and uh, somehow the uh, stock market crash and depression is, is blamed on him. Yeah, that's uh, it was a fault of capitalism, of... Um, markets, if you like, which uh, really had nothing to do with Hoover. What about the 1948 Marshall Plan funds for reconstruction and development, money that was given to European countries on a matching fund basis? Each European country had to put up as much money as was taken out of the fund. I didn't know this. Well, Alfred Desaius, that great scholar, uh, has written this up, and he's told me what all the figures meant. The um, The most important thing from the German point of view was not that the uh, Marshall Plan put up a lot of money to help the Germans. Not that at all. That's not it at all. What the Marshall Plan did do was, if from the German point of view, was to remove the impediments that the Americans had placed upon German industry and uh, in the way of currency restrictions, in the way of forbidding people to grow uh, food, in the way of forbidding people to uh, manufacture oil, in the way of um, forcing people uh, in Germany not to uh, be able to uh, use phone lines across the occupied territories. Just think of that. They couldn't make phone calls even properly. And restoring mail service and banking and all of that. All of that infrastructure of um, industry was impeded um, uh, under the uh, OMGUS, which is the American Office of Military Government, and prevented the Germans from working as hard as they needed to do. And as soon as that uh, impediment was removed, bingo, the shops filled up. The uh, Germans were at work again, 
and the Bayi engine in the middle of Europe that was the German economy revived and provided production and profit for everybody, just the way it is now. It was our stupid vengeance that ruined the Germans and was only removing the vengeance that uh, changed anything. We shouldn't be proud of the Marshall Plan. We should be ashamed of what went on before it. Furthermore, the Germans paid back uh, 90% of the money that they were uh, advanced under the Marshall Plan. Well, that's right. According to your book, Germany was excluded from Marshall funds for the first year and given the least when they were included, but is the only country to have repaid the money. That's right. And I got all that information from Alfred Desaias, the great scholar who had worked with the UN and as a lawyer. I'm just confident of the statistics and the analysis. I'm absolutely sure that Desaias is right. According to your book, the Western allies hid what they were doing under a false accounting system. The Americans took from Germany at least 20 times what Germany retained from the Marshall Plan. Do you think that the Marshall Plan has been exaggerated? It's a giant fraud. It makes uh, school children today think, oh, well, we were good guys after all. And uh, the Germans were the really nasty ones. And then after the war, we were nice to them. That's a complete lie. And it's fooling people to this day. As long as people go on believing these war, war-induced propaganda fictions, they'll never know the truth. And the truth is that we're masterminded by evil people, or, or I shouldn't say evil, I mean frightened people in Washington and London, and self-interested people uh, who were you know, like the ones whom Eisenhower warned the Americans against in the military-industrial complex. And how would you characterize George Marshall? Well, he was a smart guy with a good head on his shoulders and uh, probably a, a pretty good Secretary of State in a very hard time. So he was okay. I think he was pushed around by Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower. What do you think is the most important or a couple of the most important points that people should take away from uh, the experience of World War II? You are being lied to. You are being lied to. You are being lied to. They are telling you lies. It's all lies. Don't believe them for a minute. James Back, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. And uh, you can be sure I'm not lying to you. I've been speaking with James Back. Today's show has been Scapegoating Germany. 
James Back is a Canadian writer and researcher, a former journalist, book editor, and publisher. His most famous books, Other Losses and Crimes and Mercies, The Fate of German Civilians Under Allied Occupation, 1944 to 1950, have revealed atrocities committed by the Allies against German POWs and civilians after World War II. Other Losses is also available as a one-hour documentary on DVD, directed by James Back, which includes unique archival footage and new interviews with survivors of Allied vengeance in conquered Germany. His many books and film are available through his website at jamesback.com. That's jamesbacque.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Thank you.